Luke chapter 12, verses 22 to 34. And Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried, For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Pray with me. We come to you, Father, to lay our worries and our cares down at your feet and to seek your face. Lord, only you are worthy of our pursuit. Lord, you are worthy of all of our worship and praise. Had you never done anything for us at all, you would still be worthy simply because of who you are. You are infinitely good, You are perfect in all of your ways. You are wonderfully, spotlessly righteous. And though you have no need of us and we were entirely undeserving of your attention and your love, still you sought us out. Still you called us to yourself and made us your very own through the blood of your Son. How much more then do you deserve to be worshipped and sought after? How much more do you deserve to be pursued and the things of your kingdom pursued by those who are able to call you Father? How much more do you deserve to be loved with all of our heart and soul and strength and mind as those who have been purchased by the blood of your own Son? God, we do lay our worries and cares, our troubles, and our fears down before you, and we come asking for your grace not to be anxious about anything, 
but that in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, we might let our requests be made known to you. Thank you, Lord, for the promise of your peace that surpasses all understanding, that guards our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Lord, I pray for your help today as we open up your word, that you would show us your glory, that you would show us the worth and the beauty of your Son, and that we might lay aside everything else and seek your kingdom alone. In Jesus' name, amen. Christ's words here at the beginning of this passage, therefore, I tell you, uh, signal to us that this is very much a continuation of what we looked at last week, uh, where Jesus tells the parable of the rich fool, uh, that man whose land had produced so plentifully, and yet, uh, instead of being rich toward God, instead of laying up treasure in heaven, you remember he tore down his barns and he built bigger ones, all with an eye toward uh, self-indulgence, self-love, and he did this all to the neglect of his own soul. And Jesus says there, he says uh, to that man, take care, be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Well, you notice here in our passage today how Jesus now turns to his disciples And he says in verse 22, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on, for life is more than food and the body more than clothing. You hear the connection in in both cases about what we regard as life, what we take to be life. A rich man may have been uh, the center of Jesus' Jesus's parable in that uh, first situation, but there's lots of application to go around, even to uh, people like us, people who follow the Lord Jesus Christ and yet find themselves tempted to worry about the basic necessities of life. Anxiety and worry is the crux of the matter. And the issue that Jesus is concerned to address and to warn us away from in this passage, it's one of those socially acceptable sins, worry, anxiety, something that is no doubt common to man. We all struggle with it, and yet Jesus says that it betrays what we really believe about the meaning of life. Jesus tells his disciples that when the people of God give themselves over to worry, we actually betray what we believe about life, about the nature of life. And it's an erroneous belief that we hold near and dear. Look at the assertion again Christ makes in verse 23. He says, for life is more than food and the body more than clothing. So here is both the the corrective and the comfort that Jesus gives to his people. Life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Now, just hold on to that idea in your mind for a minute, if you will, while we reflect back on the rich fool in the previous section. 
he was covetous, you remember, and it was the kind of covetousness that was big and obvious. Big and obvious in his life. He relished in the fact that he had ample goods at his disposal. He was rich to begin with, and then when he had that that banner year, that bumper crop, he tore down those barns, he just built bigger ones. His covetousness was the kind of thing where you, you could stand back and you could gawk at it. It was easy to see in his life. But remember, remember how Jesus also said there to take, to take care, to be on guard against every kind of covetousness in your life. So here you have Christ's disciples and they are tempted to worry over basic things, what they're going to eat and what they're going to wear. Their concerns seem to be much simpler, much more innocent, it would seem. Who can blame someone for being concerned about something so simple as this? And yet, Jesus' message to them is essentially the same as his message to the rich man was. There's a continuation in the line of thought. The disciples, just like the rich man, are tempted to worry. They're tempted to wring their hands over what they can't control. They're tempted to regard life itself as having certain temporal goods. The word life, in verse 23, you, you can tie it back to the same word in verse 15, from last week, and the parallels are just remarkable in what Jesus says. Verse 23, for life is more than food and the body more than clothing. He says that to the disciples. Back verse 15, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. You see the connection. One is preoccupied with the abundance that they have. The other is preoccupied with the abundance that they don't have. One is worried about how they're going to keep a hold of all that they have managed to get their hands around. The other is anxious about getting a hold of what they don't have. What they're going to eat. Or what they're going to wear. How you're, how you're going to pay next month's bills. But here's the thing. Both have at their root, the same core conviction that life consists in the abundance of one's possessions. Now, that's not how we usually think. If you are someone who is convinced that you've got things a little bit harder off than the guy next door, that your straits are a little bit more dire uh, than the person down the block, or you drive by certain kinds of neighborhoods and you, you find yourself thinking about those rich fools. Watch yourself. Remember what Jesus says here, that the seedbed of the kind of love of money and materialism that is so obvious in other people's lives is already present in your own heart as well. It's already there. Your worry about what tomorrow holds and whether you're going to have enough to put on the table or whatever else it might be puts you in the same camp as those who place their trust in what they already have. So whether you're tempted to fear losing what you have or you're anxious about what tomorrow holds, 
what you're going to eat or what you're going to wear, Jesus' message is the same. A life plagued by worry over temporal concerns betrays a fundamental error in our thinking that life consists of nothing more than material things. You see how he is unmasking the reasons that anxiety creeps into our hearts. How do you define life? If you had to put pencil to paper, how would you define life? Is it just what you ate this morning? Is it what you put on to wear? Or is it true that you were made by God to know him, to love him, to worship him, to serve him, to glorify him and enjoy him forever? Isn't it true that the fact that you have a soul that will never die testifies to the reality that life is more than food and a body which will go into the grave is more than clothing. So the exhortation has been issued not to be anxious about your life. This assertion has been made. Life is more than food, the body more than clothing. Now Jesus is going to lay this great foundation for us. He is going to give us bases upon which this exhortation not to be anxious rests. Christ wants you to know today you have good reasons if you have been found in him not to worry. And first you have God's provision. Look at verse 24 if you will. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Think about birds for a minute. Ravens don't get their calendars out and sow seeds in the spring and then go along and, and water those seeds all throughout the summer and get their tiny little combines out in the fall and make sure to bring in the harvest. And they don't have storehouses and barns that they put up for the winter so they got stuff to carry them through to the next season. No. Now the point here is not that ravens don't work. Ravens work. They get up every morning. They work hard. They go out looking for food. But they don't ever get up in the morning worrying about whether they're going to find a worm. The point here is not that ravens don't work. The point is that ravens live this life or they are totally dependent on God who is ever faithful to supply them. He's ever faithful to supply them with their needs. Job 38 and verse 41, who provides for the raven? It's prey. When its young ones cry to God for help and wander about for lack of food. Answer, God. God. Now, brothers and sisters, you see how the Lord provides. You have witnessed his faithfulness in your own lives. You've seen how God has attended to your needs all your days in him. I have been young and now I am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken. Or his children begging for bread. And this is all heightened in this illustration by the fact that ravens were considered unclean animals under the old covenant. They weren't on Israel's menu. 
Uh, They weren't something that you can eat. And yet, God feeds even these dirty little birds. He takes care of them. And Jesus wants us to think about it. He says, consider the ravens. It's the same word you find in Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 1 where it says, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. Set your mind diligently on the one who has opened up the way into the holy place. That is through the curtain, that is through his flesh. He is faithful over God's house as a son. There are times where we need to consider Jesus, and then there are times to consider a raven, to think about a bird, take God's dealings with crows and mull them over in your mind that you might be encouraged. So the next time fall rolls around and you're in the HEB parking lot or the Walmart parking lot and you see the trees filled with a bunch of grackles, praise God. Praise God for his faithfulness to you. Rejoice in his provision. You see how the Lord provides. Secondly, you have who the Lord prizes. Continuing in verse 24, of how much more value are you than the birds? So Jesus quiets anxious hearts by saying, not only is God a faithful provider, but you are of great value in his sight. If he cares for birds, if he cares for a raven, how much more is he going to provide for you, the pinnacle of his creation? How much more is he going to show his love to you, an image bearer? Can you not see that in the cross of Christ, God loves you? Can you not see his care for you that he would send his only son to redeem your life from the pit? Now, if that is true, he who did not spare his son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? All things. Paul's saying there in Romans 8 and and verse 32, is it conceivable that the God of heaven who gave up his son to suffer, to suffer a painful, shameful death upon a cross that all of our transgressions might be heaped upon him for the remission of sins, that it might be said in Christ, the soul whose sins shall not die, but live forevermore. Is it conceivable that a God who has done this won't take care of our other needs? That he will not also with him graciously give us all things needful to our estate? Of how much more value are you than the ravens? He loves you, brothers and sisters. He loves you. This is why Peter so strongly urges the church of the living God, cast all your anxieties on him. Why? Because he cares for you. He cares for you. Worry only makes sense if God is either impotent or negligent. Are you prepared to stand by that claim? 
Worry only makes sense if the Lord loves you but is powerless to help. Or he's powerful, but he doesn't love you. Jesus says that neither are the case. He is powerful, he provides, and he treasures you. He treasures you as his very own. Now, Jesus gives us even more grounds for trusting him. He, he, he shows us the futility of anxiety in verse 25. Further weight to the argument. And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Your Bible might say something like, which of you, by worrying, can add a cubit uh, to his stature? A cubit can be a, a measurement either for length of time or for uh, dimensions, for, for length. But either way, you see the point here. Anxiety is powerless. It's futile. Worry cannot do a thing to help you get a handle on the future. Jesus is just stating the facts here for us. It cannot solve tomorrow's troubles for you. How many of you have ever come away from your worry and your anxious toil feeling better about things? You know, how many times have you given yourself over to anxiety and you've fretted over things and then you, you lift up your head and you, and you feel like your burdens are really lifted? You've got this fresh, bright outlook on the future. No, of course not. Worry is worthless. It's futile. And yet, we find ourselves worrying. We do. And so there's still more for us to consider. Jesus says, consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now that's quite a statement if you think about the glory of Solomon. The queen of Sheba saw it. Uh, she saw his house, his food, his officials, his servants, their clothing, and so on. And the Bible says that after she had looked upon him, there was no more breath in her. She was taken aback by what she saw in that man. Lilies, though, are different. Lilies, they possess a glory all of their own. They possess a glory apart from any effort of their own or anyone else apart from the Lord. They don't work for it. They don't spin little garments. God does it all. Now, here comes the application for you and for me. But if God so clothes the, clothes the grass which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown in the oven, how much more will he clothe you? Oh, you have a little faith. Well, there it is. The root of all of our worry and fear and fret is faithlessness. Oh, you of little faith, we don't believe God is going to care for us this, beloved, is why anxiety is a sin. This is why worry is actually a sin. It's a failure to trust God. Worry is the opposite of faith. It's the opposite of putting your hope in the Lord. 
And so this is a call to faith. Uh, In each one of these statements, Jesus is calling us to lay down our worries, to lay down the burdens that we carry along that are not ours to carry, and to walk by faith, looking to this loving, gracious, generous provider who is ever so faithful to care for us. You can see this call to faith in the verses that follow. Jesus charts out for us two ways to live. And I want to encourage you now to begin to think about how you can rub the truth of these words into your circumstances, particularly into the things that you know where you are prone to give yourself over to, to worry and anxiety. First, Jesus says, matter-of-factly, verse 29, and do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Do not seek these things. The idea here is do not make these a priority in your life. Don't be the kind of person whose ambition in life is centered around temporal things and worldly pinings. That's how the world lives, Jesus says. What does he say of us? Your father already knows what you need. He already knows what you need. You see that note of intimacy and care bound up in the language of fatherhood. Not only is God absolutely comprehensive in his knowledge and understanding of your needs, he's omniscient, but he's also tender and compassionate in his disposition towards you. He's a father, and he's a perfect father at that. Now, it's with that in view, Jesus says positively, seek the kingdom. Seek the kingdom of God. This is the central positive imperative in the whole passage. We've seen all of the things that we're to resist by God's grace and with his help. Do not be anxious. Do not worry. Do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink. Instead... Seek your Father's kingdom, and all these things will be added to you. Throw all of the energy that you have been giving into wringing your hands, fretting over the future, worrying about earthly things. Devote your attention instead. Prioritize your life around the pursuit of God's dominion and his rule. Let that be your single-minded pursuit in life. Seek his kingdom. In simple terms, to seek the kingdom of God is to seek the king himself. It is to seek the face of God and to prioritize your life around those things which are precious in the sight of God. Those things that are of value, not in the eyes of the world, but in the eyes of God those things that are of eternal import, to seek the extension of Christ's reign over all creation. 
proclaim the gospel to all nations that many might see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Instead of giving your life over to one that says, I am self-dependent and self-sufficient and therefore I'm fearful, therefore I'm worried and constantly afraid, live for the one who suffered and died and your place with the, with the confidence that all these things will be added to you. All of them will be added. That's what life is about, seeking the rule of God in my heart and my home, seeing the souls of men brought into the kingdom of God, making it my, my constant prayer to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth, as it is in heaven. This is what God's people are to be characterized by, church. We are to be those who determine, in view of the eternal pleasures, uh, the inheritance that we have in Christ, to step away from making the pursuit of food and clothing and an abundance of possessions our primary pursuit and life, and instead seek the King. Seek the kingdom of God. Leave our earthly cares to the one who already knows about them. He already knows our needs. Now, Christ is so good. If you look at verse 32, he offers still more comfort, still more assurance to our hearts. He says, fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Again, you see the tenderness of Christ's words. The great shepherd of the sheep puts his finger first on one of the great obstacles to our faith, to our trust, and our obedience. It is fear. He says, fear not. The one who makes me lie down in green pastures, who leads me beside still waters, who restores my soul, who leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake, what does he do? He assures us with this word that will not return void. It is the Father's good pleasure to give you not just food for your bellies, not just clothing to put on your backs, but the kingdom. The kingdom of God. If you were diagramming this whole passage This whole extended section, beginning with what we looked at last week and just sketching out a loose picture of Jesus' argument here, you would want to draw a line connecting the word kingdom in verse 32 with the word life in verse 23. For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Now, friends, what is the more? What is the more? It is nothing less than life, everlasting life, in the kingdom of God. Citizenship in the kingdom of God. What pleases God? Giving his kingdom to those who seek him. Is God your father? Are you someone who, by faith, has been adopted into the family of God. You have trusted in Jesus Christ and the spirit of adoption within you cries out, Abba, Father, to the living God. Are you part of Christ's flock? 
You are one of his sheep. If so, fear not. Fear not. During the great ejection in 1662, more than 2,000 nonconformist ministers were simultaneously thrown out of their pulpits in England by the crown. One of the lesser known Puritans, his name was Richard Gaspine, he chose this text. Luke chapter 12 and verse 32 for the very last sermon he would ever preach to his congregation. Fear not, little flock, for it is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. There is a greater kingdom to be thinking about. These are the words around which he centered his parting words to that church. He said this, the consideration of a believer's interest in this kingdom of heaven should make him cheerful and courageous in the practice of holiness and keep him from being dismayed and discouraged at all the afflictions and tribulations that he meets while in the world. This one consideration that God will bestow the kingdom of glory upon his people thereafter should make them with all willingness and cheerfulness to wade through all the calamities and encumbrances of this frail life. Are you cheerful and courageous today as a citizen in the kingdom of God? We have an interest in the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because it's the Father's good pleasure to give it to those who seek him. Little flock, Let the goodness of the Father be impressed upon your heart today. God is your Father if you are in Christ. He is a perfect Father. Now, how powerfully does a natural man's fatherhood stir him to work and to provide on behalf of his family? How much delight do we take as natural men even in all of our imperfections, to give good gifts to his children. Do we show compassion to those that are ours? We do, and we delight in that. But how much more does the Heavenly Father delight to give the kingdom to those who seek him? It is his his good pleasure. Some of you, I am afraid, suffer under the misguided idea that the Lord who has redeemed you, who has purchased you with the blood of his son is somehow reluctant to give you what you need or is begrudging in his gifts to you. The words of the Lord Jesus Christ argue to the contrary here in this passage. Not only does he supply all these things, but he gives us the kingdom. This is his gracious will. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Brothers and sisters, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But we have the kingdom, 
We have the kingdom of heaven. We are citizens in a kingdom that shall not pass away. Now, what does that mean for us today? One of the the particular applications Christ draws out here is that we are free to give. Jesus says, sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. Here's a picture of what being rich toward God really looks like. In summary, it's living a life of active dependency on God, which in turn produces this kind of generous spirit, a disposition of heart that flows out of the confidence that my God will supply my every need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Not every worldly good, but every need. Every spiritual good. Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. You believe that? With these we will be content? Church, if all you have is food and money, and yet you're still generous to the church, you're generous to God's people for which Christ died, you're still generous to the poor and the needy, you're still willing to part with earthly possessions, you're saying every time you do, this is not where my treasure is. My heart is invested, if you will, in heavenly things. Jesus is saying that when we live in this kind of way, we're giving witness to where the treasure of our heart is found. Where's the treasure of your heart? I want to give you an example of this from the early church. I want you to just listen to how the Spirit moved among God's people from Acts chapter 4 and verse 32. Now the full number of those who, were, who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common, and with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him, and brought the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now the thing to marvel at in this passage is not the great generosity that was at play. That's certainly something to rejoice in. That's certainly a work of God. But the thing to really marvel at is God's great grace that was at work. Here were God's people giving witness to the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, seeking first the kingdom of God. They had come to see so clearly the manifold provision God had made for them 
for the souls of men through the person and work of Jesus Christ. It says they were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. He was their treasure. He was their treasure. He was the one that had their hearts. He was the one that they sought after. He was the object of their longing and their desire. He was their preoccupation, if you will. And it was only natural then, and a joyful thing at that, to cut ties with earthly goods, to sell and to give as the Lord gave them opportunity. What worries or fears could you possibly have given all that God had already done. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you for the great grace that we have come to know in your Son. Thank you for your mercy toward us. Thank you for the provision that we have found in knowing you. Lord, first and foremost, the spiritual provision given in your Son. Lord, we bless your name as your people today for uh, the good news that we have a Savior, a Savior from sin, that Christ has loved us, that he gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Lord, thank you for the reminder of your faithfulness and love today. Lord, I pray that you would forgive us of our doubts. Forgive us for questioning whether you can be trusted. Forgive us for putting our faith and our confidence in the things of this world. Teach us, Lord, to look to you alone. God, I pray that you would Help us to seek first your kingdom and righteousness and that the manner of our lives would reveal that you are our only treasure. Lord, you are the only prize. You are the only source of delight and pleasure that will never fail us. Impress this upon our hearts, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.